Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical non-experts sifting through this week's health news. Every week, Laura surprises me with four stories from current events. This week's words are bleed out, implicit bias, hep C, and New Year's Eve. You know what bleed out makes me think of? What? That Linkin Park song. I think it's called Bleed It Out. Uh, no? That's, that's not, I... I am unfamiliar with the Well, <laughs> some of us are still living in the world of mid-90s rock. Rest in peace, Linkin Park lead singer Chester Bennington, who committed suicide last year. That was sad. Oh, Laura, you picked a story from the New York Post. Have we talked about the New York Post? Yes. The New York Post. Yes. The New York Post to current <laughs> events is like, I think, I think I've got, God, I hope I have the right news outlet. Yeah. It like it takes a distinctively tabloid slant at times. Yeah. Um before we get going on this podcast, I have an announcement. <laughs> I have an announcement and okay. I think it affects everyone and it is that American Airlines sucks. And <laughs> that's not my health fascination for the week. I have a different one, but while we're doing this podcast, I would like to sprinkle in some facts about American Airlines and how much they suck, which I am going to find somehow while we're podcasting this is going to be a live update about american (laughs) airlines and how much they suck okay okay all right you may continue (laughs) so our first story comes from the new york post and it's bleed out examines the harsh reality of medical errors so there's a new hbo documentary oh dear god called bleed out it's currently a stream on demand this is great and it is looking at uh, medical errors and the um, fact that most are unaccountable for it. So it follows the journey of his mother, who was 69, who had a routine partial um, hip replacement, and uh, she was in a she ended up in a coma with permanent brain damage, and nobody really did anything for eight days, and he oh. felt very. Um, he felt like this was kind of an epidemic of like, it's not just isolated incidences. Um, he didn't do anything for eight days uh, and he didn't advocate for her and he didn't push for a, a plan of care. Um, hmm. So there was an issue and she had to go back in, but they she was on blood thinners. So um, she lost oh. about half the blood in her body and that's. Um, what caused her to end up in a coma. Did they know she was on so. blood thinners? Like, was that something that they missed? Uh, she was admitted into the hospital in Wisconsin and placed on painkillers for eight days with no plan of care, says Burroughs. Uh, after an x-ray, a round of x-ray, she was suddenly rushed in for a second hip surgery while still on the blood thinner. During the procedure, mm-hmm. Julie lost, Judy lost approximately half the blood in her body. So it appears to have been like an error that they did not communicate. Uh, also, there was no yeah. There was no doctor was physically on the floor that night. Instead, she was being monitored by electronic ICU via camera, which he was told may never have been turned on. Okay, but it, it says the jury found no negligence. Yeah, which is why. Listen, I I I am as skeptical as the next person, and have my own personal misgivings at times in medical situations, which I won't go into here. But I think that perhaps this article is overstating his case or that like some of this must not have panned out the jury found no negligence okay this is a single source um okay it's not 
I think this is a story he from made one a documentary point of view. about it. Yeah, but like he made a documentary. This about story, it. if this was going to be good journalism, I believe would have contacted the hospital for comment because the fact that they were found as having not committed any negligence makes me kind of wonder. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to call into question his whole story, but um, like for example, when he says like brain damage is not a known risk factor for hip surgery, well, actually, brain damage is the outcome of some known fact of some known risk factors. I'm sure, which would include like stroke and blood loss and all these other things. I can't believe you put me in a position yeah. or I, I can't believe I'm finding myself in a position of like defending, you know, <laughs> defending this kind the, of a thing. The but. documentary, the documentary is using his mother's uh, story as like the gateway for looking at um, medical errors. So mm-hmm. there was a medical error. They were not found negligent but there was an error you know or whatever um but a quarter of a million people in the united states die from medical errors every year yeah well i mean and that's yeah cause of death in the country but so what was that what what was the error i'm wondering that she lost half her blood Mm, but that could have just like that could have been something that wasn't their fault like it's possible that that happened but wasn't their fault Although I don't know, I guess. Blood, yeah, blood well, I don't know. I, I have no watched idea. The movie Robin. <laughs> well, neither have I because it's on HBO, and who watches HBO? All those people with HBO I mean, Go I subscriptions, actually. Yeah, yeah, I did too. Fraggle Rock. Yeah, when I had a password, I would have. Yeah. But I think a lot of this, I think a lot of this speaks to the lack of communication at times in inpatient situations where there's a ton of people coming in and out of the room. And I had a friend who was in the hospital recently and definitely like there's a million people who are present and and in and out and saying things and sometimes it's very unclear where things are like globally like if you were to take all the people that have come and treated the person and say where are we what exactly is the plan i think there's a lot of like miscommunication and a lot of times the patient is the last person to know what's happening so definitely i guess you know without like being judge and jury on this Steve Burroughs guy and his mom, who certainly it is very sad that, you know, she died and everything. I, I think there's like a huge problem. Like the whole, the system is broken and the way that we care for people is some cases inhumane in some cases abusive. And in some cases just, it, it might be technically legal, but it's not kind, you know? And like, yeah, like this whole situation of she was being monitored in an electronic ICU via camera. Laura, if I'm in an ICU, for God's sake, please let there be uh, some medical staff nearby. I mean, right? I don't want to be monitored via camera. Like, I just feel like there's a lot that that can't be done via camera. And and like, I feel like people are just going to care less if there's like, they're in some other room or something. They're just like, yeah, they seem good. Really? I don't know. I also agree with his point about asking more questions and and not like blindly trusting that everything's going wrong. I mean, I don't think you have to be suspicious, but just to say like, are there other options? Like, you know how we talked about the breast cancer screening last week? I I can't imagine that you would forget because someone overemphasized <laughs> it. But I was thinking about that a lot this week and how there's these, even for women in the US, seven seven sets of guidelines from various medical and governmental associations. I think women don't realize that, although I, I attempted to tell all the women I know via Facebook this week, and 
shockingly, no one, no one interacted with my post. But okay, so I think people don't know. And when their doctor says this is the recommendation, I don't know if people even know to ask, like, are there other options? Or because I think sometimes if it sounds okay, people just go along with it. But the truth is, there may be seven sets of recommendations for a lot of things. So that's what I wonder about. But I think this guy, I mean, yeah, he's kind of like, for the sake of a documentary, I'm sure, like he's, he's taking it a little far. Like he said, if you ask nurses and doctors questions and you force them to give you straight answers, they're going to have to take a moment to really think about what they're doing. And if that happens, you've just forced better care on the patient. Well, I would also argue that if you have a combative, belligerent family, that like that might not go so well in your favor either. Like if you're the people that are like, hey, I'm going to force you to take good care of my relative. Like I agree with the sentiment behind that statement, but I do not agree with the execution of that action. Right. Even though God knows there have been times when I've wanted to be like, I'm going to force you to figure this out. (sighs) Yeah. This story is hurting my soul because I, I feel like I feel this guy's pain and here I am like saying like he needs to do it differently. I just, yeah, there's so much stuff. Uh, would you like a personal example or I have a personal example of this? Yeah. I had a uh, medical office here in Portland that did not submit a pre-authorization for some care that I needed. And then when I asked them how it was going, getting it, they told me for three weeks that we just needed to wait. And then when I finally got a denial from my insurance company, they told me that they had called the insurance company, but the insurance company told them they didn't need a pre-authorization. And then they told me, and I was like, okay, well, the insurance company is going to need the paperwork retroactively now. And then they said, well, we can't do anything until we get something in the mail from them saying that they've officially denied the claim. So that took like another month. And then they sent some of the paperwork. And right now there's some argument where the insurance company says they have not sent all the paperwork and they say that they have. And... I finally, after 10 weeks, got them to agree to talk to one another. The So the medical office said they would call the insurer and and they assured me that they did not want me to be unhappy and and they were doing everything they could. And they said they were going to email me what was sent to the insurance company so that I could see it and verify for myself and that they were going to call the insurance company on my behalf and then they were going to call me back. So that was uh, eight days ago going on nine days ago now. Not only did I not get this mm-hmm. mythical email, which I'm guessing I will never get and I don't think I even need, but I somewhat doubt that they called or you would kind of think I just I think that story actually speaks for itself. Like I don't even think I need to editorialize. That's and, and I'm like I would say I am a competent, polite, reasonable person. Like I don't yell at these people or whatever. But that's just like one one example of a very minor problem, right? So I don't even know what to say. Yeah. But so in my it, experience, it that's pretty be, typical. It doesn't have to be like life-threatening or fatal. Right. It's just like one more barrier, you know? Yeah. And it's it's ridiculous that, that seemingly no this one can... This is America. Yeah. Like no one can surmount <laughs> these obstacles. It's like this story, my story, is almost boring. It surprises no one. Like, everyone has mm-hmm. one of these stories. Everyone has, like, yeah, I called, mm-hmm. and it took them six weeks to call back. Or they said they would send the test results, and they just didn't. Or no one would talk to me, or no one would call me back. Or the insurer said one thing, and the provider said the other. Yeah, it's, well, ugh. I had I had that. Uh, I hate calling people. 
that I don't know. <laughs> Fair. Um, and I got a bill for $130 for an urgent care uh, visit that I had when I got bronchitis. And I hate calling people so much that I filled out the sheet of like paying the $130 thing, even though I have insurance. And in the past, I've never had to pay above my copay. Oh, you, you almost um, paid it, basically. And, yeah. Cause, well, I got I got the first one and I thought, huh, that's wrong. And didn't open the second one like an adult. And the third one was like, we're going to send you to collections. And I was like, fine, I'll just pay. <laughs> Finally, I screwed up my courage and I called. And I was just like, I was just calling to see, like, why <laughs> I have to pay? And I've never had to pay before. And the lady's like, uh, do you have your health insurance card with you? And I was like, yes. And she's like, okay, I'm going to read you the card number. And she's like, W. And I was like, no, it's not the same number. <laughs> I, was, I was like, stop, stop, yeah. stop. And it's because, they were it's because the front desk, the front desk didn't ask me for insurance. They just used oh. the same one and then sent me a bill for $130 because yeah. the old insurance for my last job that I work, I have not worked at for two years said mm-hmm. that I did not have insurance with them, which and is accurate. that's weird. Cause I, yeah. Despite the fact that it's the same fucking company. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so funny because half the time they force you to like confirm everything, everything, every single visit. Even if you've been there like eight times a week, they're like, can we just get your insurance card one more time? Well, this time this lady didn't want to be bothered. So she did not do it. It was like the one time. So like now, anytime I go, I'm going to be like, you need my insurance card. (laughs) I know. I know. God forbid. I, um, yeah. And I think so much of the onus of responsibility gets placed on the patient. Like as you were talking, I was thinking, well, she should have thought to, or she should have. I was thinking more charitably, actually, that like you could have like shown them your card, but also it's like, okay, but isn't the point of the receptionist that they check you in, they behave in a pleasant and calming manner, which we could do a whole tangent on that not happening half the time, and that they like get your info, right? Like it's like you have one job. Get Laura's info, you know. I know that one of the people I talked to about my thing had said to me, well, if you knew that your insurance required a preauthorization, that's something that you should have told us. And I was like, okay, one, the person, I didn't even have a, you know, I didn't even go all the way into it, but we actually had established that during a conversation in which I was being berated for, the receptionist thinking I had this one insurance plan that I don't have. But so like, I was like, isn't it enough that at every appointment I said, how's that pre-auth coming? No, apparently not. I was just like, it's all should've bad. Should have done more. Yeah. Yeah. Should have yeah. done more. I'm like, I'm sorry. Next time I'll come behind the desk and make sure. I just, I don't know. There's nothing more frustrating than, well, <laughs> it is, I will simply say it is frustrating when Everyone says it's someone else's fault. And I'm like, the only person whose fault it is concretely not is mine. Not that fault really matters. At this point, I would just like to be able to pay you what I owe you. So I don't know who comes out ahead, but it's depressing. And you know what else is depressing? You know what else is depressing, Laura? What? The state of airline travel in this country. Okay? Because it's (laughs) terrible. You know why it's terrible? I don't know. But it is. Okay, and <laughs> and you want to know one airline that's especially terrible? American Airlines. Let me just let you know that according to Thrillist.com, which I'm sure is a reliable source, 
American Airlines rates seven out of ten airlines for customer service. Southwest rated first on their system, and I think that that's legitimate. Southwest is pretty great. And American was seventh, and I think maybe out of ten, uh, they should have been twelfth, for example, for repeatedly doing <laughs> things like, I don't know, um, taking my direct flight that I paid extra money for and making it not a direct flight. I realize this is the first world problem, but I'm just saying. What's our next story? Yes. I'll be back with more about American Airlines. Our next story is, comes from Scientific American, and it's how implicit bias and lack of diversity undermine science. Oh, good source. So it's looking at implicit bias, and it gives a uh, antidote of a neuroscientist named Ben uh, Bears Bars I'm delivered his first bars. seminar. And the audience member praised him, commenting that Ben's work was so much better than his sister's Barbara's. Irony is that this person who's now deceased was actually a transgender scientist. And <laughs> Barbara was before he made the transition to male. It came out. Um, so, yeah. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. Not implicit bias, I guess, but how socioeconomic factors can influence healthcare. And now we're talking essentially mm-hmm. about... Similar, like, the outcome of these things, which is stereotypes and bias and lack of diversity and how that undermines science. Wow. Yeah. So academia has the dubious distinction to having the second highest rate of sexual harassment in the workplace, with the military having the highest. Oh, that's not surprising. Uh, Numerous studies have documented implicit gender bias, including recommendation letters, CVs, invited speakers, academic reviewers, teaching evaluations. The list is endless. Um... And the overarching message is clear is that women's contribution in STEM are not as valued as highly as men. Additionally, such biases extended to racial, ethnic minorities, LGBTQ individuals. Um, so, and it's talking about um, uh, within the Me Too movement, how that's becoming more. Um, and it is um, looking at how people review things and uh a couple years ago they did a study where her colleagues uh explored different uh gender differences and recommendation letters uh the uh, results were exciting and worth publishing but she knew that as a woman of color and an administrator as opposed to faculty and without a stem background despite having a phd in social sciences would potentially object me to subject her to biases in the review process and that's something I so think you think you've about experienced that. yourself, right? This idea that yeah. in higher education, there's a admin, faculty kind of lack of empathy, shall we say, at best. Mm-hmm. Yes. But so she wrote, her and her colleagues wrote a research paper and talking about implicit biases. And she was worried about how those implicit biases would be used when reviewing her study. Which was, so she's worried so about bias in her paper about bias. Yep. That's rough. That's rough. Um, yeah. Uh, mostly because uh, male STEM faculty have been found to be skeptical of gender bias in research. Um, and, uh, but. It's uh, like saying white people the, don't think racism is a problem. <laughs> like, really? Right, you know. Cool. Um, but it was a double blind uh, review process. So it protected her from that kind of bias. So she gives, um, she explains that we all have biases regardless of who we are and what our identities are. Um, 
and that we have to be conscious of them. And it talks about my personal favorite show, Survivor. Oh, boy. Uh, which Survivor just finished a season uh, called uh, David's vs. Goliath. But they've also had Brains versus Bronze versus Beauty and Heroes versus Healers. And all of these things, they give them, like, an identity. And it's just kind of fascinating to watch them. Like, the smart people are smart, so they're smart, so they do the smart thing, right? Like, that they yeah. really... The brawny people are brawny, so they do brawny things. And the beautiful people are beautiful, so they do, you know, they talk about beauty a lot. It's just, like, not necessarily yeah. that they would have talked about that if they hadn't been prescribed those labels, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those kinds of things. And I just think that's... And it has some things about how do we reduce uh, individual biases and some t- tips uh, when you write a recommendation letter. First, identify the traits you think that are necessary for the job. Then look at the candidate's CV or portfolio for any evidence of those skills. And that reduces the usage of gendered or racial language. Um, and be mindful that men are more likely to be hired for their potential, mm-hmm. i.e. credit for something they haven't done yet, where women are for their actual accomplishments. That's so depressing, and, but so true. Yeah. Um, Only we've seen all these like things about women's behavior in a business meeting, and the same exact thing said in the same manner is deemed overly aggressive from a woman and as like a sign of leadership potential in the man or is seen as like mm-hmm. an interruption from a woman is often seen as rude. Whereas from a man, it's mm-hmm. seen as commanding and dominant and a sign of his intellectual capacity. The same exact right. things. It's tough. Yes. It's really tough. And I think yeah. this author is right saying that, if you see yourself as unbiased, you're part of the problem. Some of these things in here, yes. I want to say, like they say, avoid qualifiers. There's no need to say, quote, for an Asian, his English is good, unquote. Like that to me just seems boldly racist and something I, I think most people I know are unlikely to say. But I think it's those more like latent things where we have expectations of behavior. For example, expecting a person who appears Asian to be more respectful or something. And how, like, I think it's sometimes it's not so much what we're saying, because we've all, I, many of us, I don't want to say all, but I, th- I think a lot of people now are more aware of making racially influenced statements. But I think we're still, there's still some, some behavioral assumptions. And whenever I come across the how dare you reaction from someone, I always wonder about bias. And I feel like how dare you can often be like a window into the the heart and soul of the asker of that question. You know, it's like what they think is totally unacceptable. And I, yeah, I've often, I've often wondered to what extent in the workplace or not, I experienced this, you know, or any of us do, because it's so hard to tell if you were a guy, you'd be having a, a separate life, right? So it's like, because I think, I think individually, I mean, tell me what you think, but I think individually we tend to assume that we're not receiving as much of it. Like you say, like, yeah, there's sexism out there, but I don't like, I've heard a lot of women say like, at my company, it's, it's not so much of a problem. So I don't know. I seem to hear the two extremes, you know, either it's a huge problem or it's not a problem at all. It's never been a problem. Never could be a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's accurate. Like, but cause like it either is an extreme case you know, where it's very overt um, issue, right? Mm-hmm. 
like the example of for an Asian. Uh, yeah, you know. that's extreme. But right, so people excuse the like microaggressions. You know, mm-hmm. I think yeah, much more insidious is the affinity bias of being drawn to people who are like us. You know, same body type, mm-hmm. same skin color, same background, same speech patterns. Because networking is the business buzzword to end all buzzwords. But networking essentially reinforces staying inside your established social group in so many ways. Like I've done a Mm -hmm. lot of networking in the past year, started doing some consulting in 2018 and just was looking to meet new people. But I would still say, you know, I started with the people like friends I knew here kind of moved, moved out, went to people who had similar skill sets, similar backgrounds. And honestly, I talked to a lot of white middle-aged people. I would say, if you want to say like, I'm in my 30s, so we'll call that middle age. Like I talk to a lot of people who look, sound, and talk like, so this is definitely a problem. I'd like to hear more about how to reduce the bias because I feel like there's there's way more than, I guess they can't go through everything here. No, but I think the way that, the main way that you defeat implicit bias is being conscious of your bias Mm -hmm. and making choices for it. So um, I know I did a test for like implicit biases of like um to show to show what it is and like I knew that I had biases because of you know the way that I am and the way that I was raised and uh different things being human Um, and so yeah and I had biases that I disliked about myself so I've always tried to be a little bit more conscious of it um Mm. and it reminds me of F new Q song of everyone's a little bit racist you know yeah like yeah like we we all make assumptions like the other antidote that's in here is that you know as a black man this grad Mm. student was viewed as you know threatening but when he whistled classical tunes people smiled at him and were less afraid of him because he recasted himself in a different way and you know i've had that conversation with people like because in society Black men are viewed as dangerous just by their mere existence. You know, that they're somehow more threatening than any other group. A black male freaks people out more. Yeah. And And I've tried to be conscious of of what I, like, and in the things that I say. Like, if I'm talking about somebody who is black, is it necessary for me to include the uh, qualifier that that person is black? black. Does that add anything to the story? What do I say white person? Do I say mm-hmm. Asian person? You know, like yeah. what is it about that I'm trying to Highlight. convey and yeah. and delete those words that are unnecessary. Right. You know? That we don't yeah, that we don't need to point it out as, as a seeming abnormality. Right. Because it's assumed that they're white unless told otherwise, right. you know, as you know, yeah. a white person. It's like the ethnic you know, food I, aisle in the grocery store. I I think about that all the time. And I, it didn't occur to me for years. And then one day I was like, wait a minute. There's a bunch of different ethnicities, right? But it's not just like there's mm-hmm. American food and then there's ethnic food created by brown people. But that's like how the grocery store does it. Like the ethnic food aisle is like Mexican, Asian types of cuisines, like Thai, Vietnamese, whatever. And I was like, wait a minute. Like all, all food is ethnic. Why do we have an ethnic food aisle? Or like ethnic hair care products? I'm like, well... They're just, you know, like, it's so bad. It's yes, so bad. It's not, 
It's not the dominant. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not the quote normal thing, you know? And so it's like, we need to set this apart with a special label and just like, ugh, ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Or when we say like ethnic restaurant, that's so stupid. That doesn't mean anything. We're using it wrong. Right. Because what we mean, I guess, is not American food. Yeah. But we also don't mean like Polish food or British food or oh, French so cuisine. Oh, so true. It's We're not, not, it's not Irish. Cuisine is not considered ethnic. ethnic yeah. It's know? French. It's French. That's, yeah. So. But it's not labeled under. Right. You know, it's not oh, Jewish. that's so you know, good. It's not, yeah. It's no, not. that's so true. If someone said, we're going to get ethnic food, and they took you to a French restaurant, you'd be like, hmm? Yeah. Although, I mean, I guess I'm not really hearing people say ethnic food as much anymore, but the fact that it's still a sign in the grocery store, I feel like like a generation or two from now, they're going to look back and just be like, what? Like, I think they're going to think we were so insensitive. That's fair. Um, Laura? So we are. <laughs> would yes. you like to hear some more information about the best U.S. airlines to fly, according to Travel and Leisure magazine? Absolutely. Well, guess which airline is not number one or number two or number three. Guess which airline is lower in the rankings? Uh, I, I couldn't possibly begin to American guess. Airlines. American Airlines. <laughs> okay. So according to Travel and Leisure, all right. In a study, in an article published on April 24th of this year, 2018, they looked at the American Customer Satisfaction Index, and they found that all but four of the largest airlines saw passenger satisfaction decline in the past year. You know which airline didn't decline, Laura? Southwest. Southwest. You know why? Because they're pretty much awesome. They're pretty much awesome. Southwest is amazing. Yeah. They beat out JetBlue for the number one spot. Alaska Airlines... Also, coming up in the rankings, possibly do their merger with Virgin, we don't know. Airlines that dropped three percentage points included a bunch of them and also American Airlines, which would be a surprise to no one because they suck. All right, what's our next story? (laughs) (laughs) So our next story comes from National Public Radio, and it's why aren't more users of opioids or meth screened for hepatitis C? Okay. So when people are seeking drug treatment for opioid addiction... There is a concern that they about have they've had con- contracted hepatitis C's um, because of shared needles, right? But yes. it's typically not something that's tested for. And one of the reasons why is that um, uh, the first test is pretty cheap, but the second test is more expensive, and it also requires like the person to come back, and they might have slipped through the cracks that way. Um, but with the Hepatitis C is uh, a disease that um, you could have no symptoms for for a really long time, um, but it can lead to liver scarring, liver cancer, and also death. Um, And people with hepatitis C can um, unwittingly infect others because they don't know that they are infected. Um, And they did a research published in the, on a blog for the Journal of Health Affairs, said only 25, 27.5% of facilities reported offering testing for hepatitis C. That's weird. Um, which also, was really low. Wait, time out before we go too much farther on this. I disapprove of the worst, the use of the word users in the headline because you can use it for meth, but there are people who use opioids pharmaceutically through their doctor 
for medical reasons. And there are people who abuse opioids off-label, not from a doctor, obtained illegally. And I feel like they they could be more specific in this headline. Okay. Well, I would just – I'm just going to – I'm not going to tell you how you do your job. Uh, I mean, it's but, not really my job. <laughs> but I've heard from, like, a reliable source that, like, headlines should be, like, less words. <laughs> Was that me? Sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so avoid true. cliches. Okay, but we could I say mean, they could just simply substitute abusers for users, and that would be more clear. Sure. Maybe they get they maybe they have to pay per letter. It's a long <laughs> article. So for a website. They might not be able to afford it. So um, do you do you think that this not screening people with addiction for hepatitis C is kind of like when you take someone with cancer and they start to miss like their regular blood work because people just like it's like they have so many complications that they're like, oh, shoot, we never actually, like, checked your cholesterol because we forgot. Or I, I, I read this somewhere. It's like people with complex medical problems often miss out on, like, basic things. Like, they don't get their eyes checked as often as they should because it's like fire, 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 and then they just forget. Yeah, and part of it is um, is the reimbursement for the test is lower than, I think, the cost of it um, with Medicare, and most of these people – who have abused um, these things don't have health care yeah. themselves, so they're reliant on Medicaid or Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but it's also talking about the fact that there is so there was there's a huge population of baby boomers who have hepatitis C because they got a blood transfusion before the '90s before people checked mm. for hep C, right? They yeah. didn't know to do it, so um, so those people have it. Um, but then there's now a larger group of people um, who are um, 18 to 29 who have um, hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. Um, at least 3.5 million people who have disease. Um, most of them are baby boomers. But it is increasing. Yeah. Well, and something to know, I just checked the CDC's website. They've got a great article called, not a great title, but a great article called Hepatitis C Questions and Answers for the Public. I like that they included the phrase for the public. Like they didn't just do like hepatitis C FAQ. They were like, hey, these, these are for the public. Now, to be fair, they have a second page that's for health professionals, which um, fun fact that if you put up a website with medical information and you put one for health professionals and one page for the public, it'll be like a majority of your web traffic will go to the health professionals page because everyone's like, I'm not an idiot. I want to read what my doctor's reading. And I really love that about people. But anyway, to come back, <laughs> to come back to the point, this, this article is like a little, you know, encyclopedic type of deal. And it mentions that there are, there's acute hepatitis and there's chronic hepatitis C. And so most people end up with the chronic infection, probably because of the factors this article is talking about. But acute is within the first six months, and it it can be resolved. But 75 to 85% of people currently who become infected with hepatitis C will develop the chronic infection. So it really does seem like screening could make a big difference, right? Especially if it's, I don't know if it's time sensitive. I mean, they're defining it by time. I don't know to what extent if you don't treat it, you know, I mean, it's going it, to spread. But if you go for, the, you know, it's just it should be part of the public mm-hmm. health 
uh, officials yeah. are just advocating for yeah. a holistic review. So, like, because you have uh, done X, Y, and Z, we are going to look out for A, B, C, D, and F. You know, like, it mm-hmm, should be, mm-hmm. because you were a smoker, we're going to be more conscious of the fact that you could have, you could develop lung cancer, even yeah. though you've stopped smoking, you know, like, yeah. I think this is just yet another you've case increased of, your risk for heart disease. So we're going to watch that. Yeah. So it's just like, yeah. And this is, this is one of those cases where they're telling us that it's not happening because the providers are overtaxed. And I believe that, but I also think, okay, that's not for us as a society, that's not a great rationale to accept like something needs to change here you can just be like oh right. well we, we were gonna check you for cancer but it was late the lab was busy everyone was tired it was the holidays so i mean right you you wouldn't you wouldn't say that or like what if you went to the grocery store and they were like ah we just ran out of time to order milk this week so no milk for the city just no milk yeah. and we would be like that's absurd and if, what if they said, we're really, right. really busy? We wouldn't say like, oh, you're really busy? We'd be like, okay, we'll figure, we got to figure something else out. Like, this is my we new slogan. Need to hire more people. Yeah. Healthcare needs to work better than a grocery store. That's the stand. <laughs> that's my standard. You know what else I have standards for, Laura? You know what else I have standards for? Air travel. Air travel? Air travel. <laughs> and according to thepointsguy.com, last year... American Airlines moved down in their rankings, coming in six out of ten mm. ranked airlines. They say that the carrier continues to put up mediocre numbers in on-time arrivals, lost baggage, fees, and customer satisfaction, a criteria in which – oh, that should be a criterion, but okay – in which it ranked ahead of only <laughs> low-cost carriers, Frontier, and Sprint, or in Spirit, which, for the record, have a lot lower prices. Just another way to let you know that American Airlines sucks. What's our next story? Thank you. Our next story comes from Elite Daily, and it's six New Year's resolutions to make for your mental health. So 2019 is the cleanest slate yet. Mm. So we're approaching that time of year where we come up with unrealistic uh, New Year's resolutions for ourselves. Sweet. So this author gives us uh, six, six options, six tips, six resolutions. Okay. Um, So one is ask yourself simple guiding questions at the start of each day. So uh, she, so that this life coach uh, says, what would it take to feel full of life and energy today? And the point is not to have the answers necessarily, but to be conscious of it. Uh, Cultivate and stick to a meditation practice that works for you um, because meditation has been proven multiple times to be good for all things and everything and actually they Uh, despite this being a wonky source they are right um i recently spoke with a psychologist or mm, not a psychologist anyway someone working in the mental health field who said that a study had shown that 15 minutes a day is what it takes to see a benefit from meditation you don't have to do a full hour so there you go yeah there you go uh, pay attention more than just your phone throughout the day. Uh, so oh it recommends yeah. engaging with the people around you. And Take now the iPhone. On dates. Yep. Yes. And we have the screen time app on the iPhone now. So check and be horrified. Uh, the next one is take yourself out on dates just because. So that's the one I think I'm going to do. I think I'm going to date myself in uh, 2019. I love it, Laura. Uh and embrace the positives instead of the instead of dismissing them. And I think this that is um, 
something that I've noticed in some of my friends or whatever, where they'll, I'll give them a compliment and they'll say, yeah, well, but, and I'll be like, yeah, uh, no. You yeah. You're like, I'm trying to tell you, you look nice and you're like t- turning me down. Right. And give your per- perfectionism a reality check. So uh, yeah. I think those are six excellent choices and I might share that with some of my friends because they might those, benefit from some of it too. Those are great. Yeah. I want to try to do the one, well, along with paying attention to something other than your phone, I like the embrace the positives instead of dismissing them. Because I definitely think that sometimes I'll be like, I'll look at a whole situation, things I did well, things that I did poorly, and I take all the things I did well and I set them aside because I'm like, I don't have to work on that. I'm good. Like, those are fine. And then I just hone in on all, all the stuff I'm messing up. And it's really, it's hard on your self-esteem after a while to think about life that way. Mm-hmm. You know what else is hard on your self-esteem, Laura? Is flying American Airlines. <laughs> you know why? Because yeah, it absolutely. makes you feel like you're making bad life choices. But since your article wants me to focus on the positives, what I want you to know is that you're not alone if you hate American Airlines. And there is a Facebook group, Everybody Hates AA, that you can join. And you can find it by the simple Google search, which I just did. American Airlines sucks. <laughs> Thanks, American Airlines for messing up my flight tomorrow. It's going to be okay, <laughs> but you do kind of suck. I mean, objectively, I think I have proven throughout this podcast, there's a, there's a lot of evidence that while not the worst airline, they are certainly not the best and should not be among our top choices. Southwest, we still love you. I'm not saying, you know, no, I'm not qualifying any of this. That's where it stands. They suck. So what is your current medical fascination, Robin? Well... <laughs> You're going to be surprised to know that it has nothing to do with air travel. And my current fascination is actually joy. I've been thinking a lot this week about, about life being short and it's the end of a year. Another year is gone. We're not getting any younger. And I have this task through a professional development group. I'm in like a vestige group um, for business leaders and it is to develop goals for the coming year. And this will be like my third year of coming up with goals. And I was kind of a little bummed thinking like, oh, it's like come up, you know, I just got to the end of one set of things completed and now I have all this new stuff that I need to do. And I realized that rather than focus on certain metrics, you know, this many things, this many races, this many accomplishments, this many new clients, like that I would like my goal for the 2019 or like I would like my outlook on 2019 to be about finding joy in my life the way it is and not reaching, reaching, reaching to make it better or not feeling like continuous improvement is a must. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, but um, yeah, just having, I had a close friend who had a health scare recently and I just realized anew that as cliche as it is, we don't know how many more years we're going to get. And I don't want to spend too many of them like reaching for things to the expense of realizing that life as it is, is also a really beautiful thing even when I have to fly American Airlines. So that is my health fascination (laughs) for the week. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Did you have a current event you wanted to share with us, something that we should know about? Even though obviously health is the most important news that you consume, but if you were to know about something else, what should you know? Um, Probably the biggest impact politically is um, uh, a judge in uh, Texas struck down the entire Affordable Care Act uh, as unconstitutional um, because of the repeal of the um, tax 
um, that uh, the mandatory uh, what's what the fuck was it called? <laughs> oh, the man the healthcare mandate. The, yeah, like for, forcing everyone a, to get uh, coverage. Yeah, the but they like did a the it was a tax. They repealed the penalty, the tax penalty for not having oh. insurance. Congress. Merry did, Christmas, so y'all. This, so uh, the Affordable Care Act is um, is uh, been viewed reviewed as unconstitutional, and it'll state. be appealed. But um, but that puts it into um, somewhat more of a, a jeopardy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here we go again. <laughs> never-ending saga. I know. It's like the government might shut down. We might not have the Affordable Care Act. It seems like a perfect way to end the year-ish. So thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to share the podcast with your friends, we would love that. We are online at thebadpatient.com. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your media to The Bad Patient. We are also on Twitter at The Bad Patient. And you can rate, share, and subscribe to the podcast if you want to help us out. We want to say a special thank you to composer Evan Schaefer. Thanks, Evan. You can listen to his music on SoundCloud. Until next time, we are Bad Patients.